0: Ron Wilhoyt to come and share with us the need for the Almighty. Part 2, I understand. Ken, thank you, and thank you for that special music. It should be quite comforting to know the truth behind those beautiful lyrics. That his eye is upon us also. Now David, let me ask you real quickly. Did I speak with you this week? No sir, I didn't. In fact, I think the last time I talked to David was last Sabbath. And thank you also for complimenting me on this tie that I have on today. I took the advice of my dear brother-in-law and went and got a couple more. Which reminds me of one of my tie stories. Because I've got a few. Oh, I would say I was nineteen, and I have to admit that I probably had never had a tie on unless my dear mother clipped it on me. But I got the idea to go and apply for a a job back when South Roads Mall was in its pomp. It's kind of a Ralph Lauren shop. Never wearing a tie, but going and interviewing in a particular place that I would have to wear one every day. But the first interview I went to, I didn't wear one. And the man I was talking to, he says, well, you know you'll have to wear a tie if we decide to hire you, Mr. Wilhoit." Okay, I didn't think I had a chance. Well, the phone rang. We'd like you to come back in for another interview. So I thought, okay, wait, what did he say? I just so happened at the time to a young lady that worked at South Roads Mall at a store called Vandiver's. She's was very stylish. Said, OK, here's what I've got. I've got this, and I've got that. I've got to get a tie. What do I do? She says, you've got to get one of these. So I did. Well, I went and got one. I was trying to put this thing all together before going to the interview. And I never could quite get this to line up right. It always looked something like this. So I was in my apartment going, "Ah, no problem, I'll get this tie sorted, loop it around your neck again. Might have been like that. (laughs) And then, of course, you get that one that hangs down about two feet. So I said, I know what I'll do. I'll go see this particular young lady that I know that works at Vandiver's. And she will, in her abilities, get me sorted before I go to this second interview. No. Still didn't work. But once we got to a point where I would say it was probably about like, you know, when you do alterations and you do certain things, they've got these really nice scissors around there. There's one way you take care of that when it's time to go. So off it clipped. Went on, got the job. It's funny what your mind thinks of when, just by someone complimenting you on your tie. David, I was listening to you too. It's why I asked you, did we talk this week? Because, of course, we didn't. But you see this so often, especially at the feast, that men who do not talk, men who do not share their notes, kind of keep them to themselves, you find at times we're almost working off of the same set of notes because it is that sameness of that spirit That's such a blessing, and it just thrills us to be partaking of. Well, two weeks ago, Sabbath before last, in a different tie, okay, we looked at two intriguing and interesting reports. One of them from 2010 when Diane Sawyer did a short video over a book that came out then called America's Four Gods. Interesting video. What was interesting about it to me was that in this report that came out which prompted these men to write the book, and as reported by Diane, that nine-tenths, is that 90%? Nine-tenths of Americans believe in, and I went like this, God. God's a very generic term and means different things to many people based on what you believe God to be. But nine-tenths have some sort of God notion, God belief. But then just last month, a very interesting, somewhat lengthy article was put out by the BBC. It's like talking to Ilya after services two weeks ago when you want to kind of know what's going on in your little area, you've got to get out of that pot, okay? Okay and look outside, inward. Russia today is a good source, BBC is a good source. And this article, I read quite a bit of it, maybe a little bit too much of it, but there were some very intriguing things about it, of course, and the article's entitled, you know, here we go, nine-tenths of Americans have a belief, right, in God. But, you know, last month, BBC reports that why is faith falling in the United States. So there's been some sort of something that's gone on since 2010. For to have a belief in God must require some element of faith. But now faith is seen to be falling. Atheism is on the rise in the United States, while those who consider themselves religious has dropped. The uh, article went on to say that that's kind of a little misleading that atheism is on the rise in the United States. Just blanket, but it is disproportionately high in two areas of society. That being one, academia, propeller heads, right? And the other, the media, academia and the media. What's so interesting about things like this, these reports, these articles, these books, these things that are written, these things that are shared, it's not so much what's presented. We found some information. Here you go. What I call the meat of it are the comments. You know, now we can comment about anything, anytime whether it's, hey, I'm brushing my teeth now, or something relevant. And what was so striking to me about these articles were the comments themselves. How people feel and how people think about things that are presented to them. Now, some of the comments that you read, you have to immediately categorize in the JPG category. Have you heard of the JPG category? It's the just plain goofy and it immediately goes there but some of them every now and then make you go whoa wait just a second and one of these particular comments was kind of the impetus the reason the motivation for the title of that introduction two weeks ago of the need for the Almighty. And I appreciate it when someone has a comment that they don't hide it behind something like Big Daddy 221. Actually, it's your name and where you're from. And if you want to respond, feel free. But this was a certain comment based on the viewpoint of why is faith falling in the United States. He writes, What about the many Americans who see no justification for the existence of a god or gods? What about them all? Personally, I believe that while there will always be paradoxes, all else can be explained by what we know or can find out. And then that word science is there in parentheses. see, the what we know or what science will figure out for us that we can know. But this is what kind of just kept going in, in my mind after I read it. After the, he says this, he says, and accepting this simplifies my life greatly. And accepting this simplifies my life greatly. I have no need for a God, let alone religion, and I know many, comma, many, many, many people just like me. I have no need for a God. It makes his life, what did he say? It simplified his life greatly. Well, Job, in one particular phase of his defense, because he had a few, the dialogue, the interaction between his friends and him, Job, in one particular phase of his defense, he went into kind of this comparative evaluation with what he considered to be the wicked people the unrighteous people that have pretty much, well, got it green tree all the time. And speaking from that perspective, he raises this as though they were asking this very question in Job 21, verse 15. So thinking about what this gentleman commented on, and that the fact that people are actually admitting that not really doing the religious thing anymore. You know, I'm spiritual and stuff, but don't talk to me about that God business. But Job brings this up concerning certain people. He says they live as though they, this is how they feel. They say, what is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit should we have if we pray to Him? That's someone who doesn't have need for a God, right? That's someone who's got a simplified life. It's just fantastic, folks. So therefore I say, what is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto Him? No need whatsoever. But see, recognizing some certain needs... Recognizing some certain needs was Jacob. Let me read to you what Jacob vowed when Jacob vowed a vow. And I don't want to say he recognized certain needs because I find his phrasing in this, well, I think you'll kind of relate to it a little bit. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, if, he starts to say, if. God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I'm going and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. Okay, if God will kind of take care of me here, give me something to eat, put some clothes on me, so that I come again into my father's house in peace, I want peace in my life. He says, then shall the Lord be my God. If he'll do something for me, then I'll acknowledge him. Now, we've all been there. At some sort of time, in some era of your existence, we've kind of made these. Lord, I'll tell you what. Work out a deal with the Lord. God I've got a deal for you. As if He needs something from us. And I like what he says as he closes this thought. He says, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you will give me, I'll give you ten. Ten percent. So see, he didn't get too big and too much above his raisin, though, did he? Because he had that whole tithe idea from, of course, Abraham. But I love that. he says, and of all that you shall give me, I will surely give the tenth unto you. The eternal must have looked down and said, man... What a deal. That was Jacob, right? But you know, in honest evaluation, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise any one of us. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't sadden us. Because many of us probably know very well, personally well, people that will tell you the same thing, that they have no need for God. They have no need for it. But really the salient question, what's been going on in my mind since reading this certain comment, is that to those who profess to have need, those who profess to have need for the Almighty, those that profess to need, why do you have it? He tells you why he doesn't need him because it's just too complicated and it simplifies my life not needing it. Those of us that do. Those of us that say we do, why do you have it? Because really that question that Job poses, speaking of those who live, I guess wickedly, but although it appears as though it's green tree, he's asking the same question to each one of us. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit should we have if we pray to Him? It's a difficult question to believers, hopers. Is that what you say? People that hope, hopers, believers, people that yearn, would be a yearner. What is it about your needs? Now, from 2010, those nine-tenths, God-believers, right? Right? They were able to take this information of these God believers and put them into these four categories. You say, okay, these nine tenths of these Americans that say they believe in God, that belief can be placed in four different little categories. The first one being authoritative, the second, benevolent, the third, critical and the fourth was distant. After I read that article two weeks ago, if you see me do this, I'm not having a tick, and just there's a fly up here. After reading that article two weeks ago, I started thinking about these categories. Go away. Authoritative, benevolent, critical, and distant. You could probably take a, a survey of the Psalms, and probably find some aspect of how David, the psalmist, may have felt like this situationally at certain times in his life. Yeah, come here and get this for me. <laughs> Let me. bring me some honey and I'll put a spoon of honey over here. But it's when I think of the category of distant, that people who believe in a God, yeah, I believe in God, but I believe that He's, he's distant. He got everything set up, checked out, said you're on your own, I'll catch up with you when you're dead. The distant God. It really reminds me of the psalmist. Especially in the psalm that he went on this way, where he says that he was weary with groaning. Every night make I my bed to swim, I water my couch with my tears. I mean, I'm weary with groaning. Every night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears and tear-soaked pillows. What I have to say is a yearning. It's a groaning that he was familiar with. But see, through these yearnings and through these groanings, he also had what? He had Exuberance. Right, He had passion and he had zeal. And in two particular psalms, when he acknowledges that the eternal is his help, when he acknowledges that the eternal is his deliverer, he begins that by saying, I'm poor and needy. He says, but I am poor and needy, make haste unto me. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, make no tarrying. But what was it that we have about David from the prophet Samuel? Even though he was needy, even though he was groaning and worn out, weary of groaning, making his bed a pool of tears, Samuel reveals to us something quite interesting about David, and we all know it. Though through this incredible professed need, he was after something. And What was it? He was after the very heart of his creator, right? Saul, your time is over. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. Now, last week in... Mr. Whiteley's sermon. He said something that just really said many things. Of course he did that made me think. But he said one thing in particular that really kind of what I in, rather encapsulates David to me by when you really study him, the life that he led, all that he went through, and now he just poured it all out unto the eternal. And what he said is, it's undivided reliance. Undivided reliance. And I add, it's the trustful dependence. But that undivided reliance, it's not trying to manipulate a situation. It's not trying to work yourself into the good graces of somebody else thinking that they might help you in a situation. It's undivided reliance on what he knew as he prayed, even though the pillow was soaked with tears, even though he knew his help and his deliverer, right? David. David. It's from the Hebrew "dod," meaning loving. And he was loving. The passion, the zeal that he had, the loving. It's such a fitting, wonderful name for him. In professed needfulness, undivided reliance, but yet he was after that heart of his creator. And that was undivided. The sole purpose, the sole mission. I'm after that heart, he said. But the one thing about David is that he was wonderfully gifted. (coughs) Wonderfully gifted in what I say is adoration flow. Is that when he would begin to adore and praise the Lord, that adoration would just flow forth from him. So, when answering that twofold question offered by Job and the innumerable, there's no telling the innumerable that have come and gone, the innumerable that are now, the innumerable that will come, that will actually ponder the very question. David answers that question. The question, of course, is what is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray to him? We'll look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103 in verse 2. The adoration flow. Aren't the Psalms incredible? Psalm 103 verse verse (coughs) 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul and forget not all his benefits. Forget not (coughs) all his benefits. Then he goes down this list, Okay. The forgiver, the healer, the redeemer. I love this one. He is the crowner of loving kindness and tender mercy. He is the satisfier, the source of renewal. But within these beauty of holiness attributes, through this flow of adoration, he reveals a most profound benefit not to forget in verse 7. After this adoration flow of all of these incredible beauty of holiness attributes, he says what he made known his ways unto Moses. He made known his ways unto Moses. From the Hebrew, it's Yada Derek Moshe. Yada Derek Moshe. He made known his ways unto Moses. You know, listening to the announcements and hearing that trumpets, 2012 it's really close isn't it that means we're creeping Ah, that might not be the right word are we if we're creeping towards something if we're getting closer to something we're getting close to 2013 2013 here in almost 2013 in your mind in your mind knowing that the eternal, almighty, most high, made known his ways unto Moses. As we are upon 2013, in your mind, what would you tell me about his ways? You've passed through that question, what is the almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray to him? What in your mind would you tell me about his ways? Okay, what about His ways that He made known to Moses? Is there any difference? Is there any difference in your mind about His ways than what He made known to Moses? Is there any difference or have they remained constant? Is there any disparity between His ways now than when He revealed made known His ways unto Moses. Or is it completely perfect, truly unchanging? Truly unchanging from everlasting to everlasting. As the heavens are higher than the earth, right? And then by what we're seeing, there's no telling how high the heavens are from the earth. But as high as the heavens are from the earth, the Eternal says, it's the same as my thoughts and yours. But he says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. But you know what? He revealed his ways unto Moses. And really, really most fascinating story that you can wrap your mind around. That's what I want to look at today by looking at Exodus 24. This kind of goes along real well with what David is talking about. Here in 2013, if I were to ask you, tell me about the ways of the eternal, would there be any difference than the ways that he revealed unto Moses? Really have read through this very slowly this week, and I just try to visualize and capture. There's so much in the Exodus story, so much, but there's one thing that I want you to have in your heart, in your mind, and and glowing in your Bible. If you're a writer and yours like I am, mine. This is something that's in purple. I think bled through the other side and probably through three more sheets. This is fascinating to me. Here in Exodus 24, talking about what David said, that he made known his ways unto Moses. Yada, derek, Moshe, right? Verse 1 of Exodus 24 says, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship you afar off. Seventy-four folks, right? Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. Come up unto the Lord, but he says, and worship you afar off. Verse 2, and Moses alone shall come near the Lord. Moses shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. And all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words which the Lord hath said, will we do? In one voice. It's unanimous. All he says, we're going to do it. Let's go to verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. Now this one you've really got to think for just a second, this next verse. Ten Commandments was a good movie, but it didn't capture this. I mean this. They went up, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw, they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, as best could be described. I guess. As it were, it appeared, it, as best I can tell you, it looked as if it were a paved work of a sapphire stone. What's the biggest sapphire stone any of you have ever seen? I think there's one in the Tower of London that the Queen has in her priceless jewels. It's kind of large. Well, imagine a pavement of it. And they saw him. And what does it say? Under his feet as it were, paved, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in clearness. And they got to see that. Verse 11, Upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did heat and drink. It's a little bit different situation than what happened to Abraham, right, on their way to Sodom. To see that, it looked like it was a pavement of sapphire beneath his feet. And here's what I want you to keep in your mind. It's verse 12. Because back in verse 1, he says, You you guys, come on up unto the Lord. And he kind of narrows it down just a bit in verse 2. He says, Moses... You come near the Lord. But in verse 12 he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me. You guys come up sort of over there. Moses, you come on up just a little bit. And in verse 12, The Lord says to Moses, Come up to me and to the mountain. You be there. The Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me and to the mountain and be there. This is what's so incredible right here. It talks about. You want a real differentiation between what David talked about in Colossians about the handwriting, as though someone could equate that to the living Word of God? It's not handwriting. Notice this. Come up to me into the mountain, be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written. Moses, I want you to come up to me, and you be there. I want to give you something. Tables of stone, written on by the eternal, almighty, Most High himself, that you may teach them. Okay, well, what happened to those? Do you remember what happened to those? Ron, that's pretty much right. They, they kind of went, maybe in, if he was looking, they kind of maybe went that direction. They might have went that direction. Those given to him and written on didn't make it. That whole golden calf stuff. It says his anger just boiled within him. Who's ever thrown something when they've been mad? But turn to Exodus 34. Lord, I pray that you help me never to throw another thing out of anger. Anger will absolutely eat you alive. Spit you out, and move on to the next one. But I tell you what, after seeing <laughs> after seeing and and Being able to experience what Moses experienced, not just with the others by seeing beneath his feet that pavement of sapphire, but actually said, you're going to come up here, you're going to be there, I'm going to give you these. And actually was given them. Tables of stone. Exodus 34 verse 1. It's interesting, from Exodus 24 to 34 is what? It's not a trick question. Exodus 34, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee. He tells him, okay, you get to work. Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first. He gave him the first ones. What would it have been like to take them? <laughs> okay. That's fascinating. He says, you could make you too, buddy. Tables of stone. Like unto the first, but what does he say? This is it. And I will write upon these. I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first ones. And he says, which you broke. <laughs> Don't let him get away with it which you broke. And be ready in the morning and come up in the morning in the Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me in the top of the mount. Nobody was to come with him just like before. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning in verse 4 and went up into Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he says he took in his hand the two tables of stone. What was given to him? Tables of stone. A law. And commandments written by who? Himself. The eternal, the almighty. The most high. Gave him. Wrote on them. This is okay. I see what happened with that. There's no telling what Moses beheld when he came down off that mount after being in the presence of the eternal to with... To have that thrown in his face. Law and commandments which I have written. And see, here's the thing. How many times were they written? How many times did the eternal write this? Two times. First time, he says, here. Here's your two tables. We know what happened to those. He says, cut you out two and you come up here to me and I'll write them again. And what's fascinating to me is that there's a specific day that's been written twice by the eternal. And that's today. The Sabbath. Now we've all beheld something valuable. I mean, if you think about it, what's the most valuable thing you ever held in your hand? What's the most valuable thing you ever looked at? What would it have been like to have actually traced that Traced it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Eternal Almighty. Take these and I'm place your fingers. Place your very fingers in what the Eternal wrote and gave. And to have God notions that somehow that's equated to a handwriting that's just cast aside as nothing. It's incredible. Now, translated law and commandments... It's Torah and mitzvah. It's Torah and mitzvah. What was it that David said? He said he made known his ways unto Moses. He made known his ways unto Moses. The Torah is the directions and instructions... And the guidance along the way. And mitzvah, of course, translated commandments are the from everlasting to everlasting precepts. It's the Torah and the mitzvah. Torah, first time it's mentioned. Torah, first time it's mentioned in Scripture. Genesis 26, verse 5. Mitzvah. First time it's spoken of in Scripture. It's the same place. Genesis 26, in verse 5, which says, Because that Abraham Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, Torah and mitzvah, As what? As the covenant promises from the revelation of the divine nature that the eternal is a covenant relationship loving father. As these covenant promises made unto Abraham were being transferred to Isaac. That's why we have Genesis 26 verse 5 because he says, Because that Abraham obeyed my voice, It's more often time rendered heard from Shema. Heard. Probably ten times more. Heard. Because Abraham heard my voice. Kept my charge. Guarded my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. As the covenant promises were transferred unto Isaac. But see, what is it that Abram had to do first before this happened? What? He had to depart. When it was Abram... It's time for you to go. You have to depart your country, your kindred, and your father's house. David brought up a very good point because that's something that also many have had to depart from is that specific God notion It's that Old Testament God versus that New Testament one. It's how you had that Old Testament God, wrathful, imposing laws impossible to keep, but if you don't keep them, I'm going to expel you from the land I brought you into. Get on about your business. But then the New Testament God comes along and says, What? Oh, no, no. In one sentence, I can make all of the dietary instructions disappear. The notion of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. That somehow the writing in tables of stone is something that could be even classified as handwriting. That's just merely cast aside. As though it's now just been taken out of the way. That was for a time then. I've heard so many times. That was for a time then. Unlucky souls. But not now. But what is it that our Savior, what is it that the Messiah said, He answered and said that my doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. My doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. We're talking about the revelation of the divine nature that is covenant relationship based. And what we find in the words of the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus, is an elevation of that revelation. Because what did he say there towards the end? He said, if you've seen me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I want to apply a little Isaiah in the last few minutes. I'm not going to get to all of it, but I want you to be aware of some things. Most that you are, I'm sure. But that... I think that we're in agreement that Scripture is true in saying that the eternal does not change. That from everlasting to everlasting He changes not. And then there's that whole YTF. The yesterday, today, and the forever... Which the yesterday and the today and the forever makes a a really unique threefold cord that I've talked about. A threefold cord not being easily broken. But when you threefold cord the Word of God, the Word of the Eternal, when you threefold cord that, it cannot be broken because the Messiah himself says that Scripture, the Scripture, cannot be broken. Look at Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. We're very familiar with this. But what I want you to do is as we read some of these things found in the Torah, in the Law and the Prophets, as we read some of these things, who else said the same thing? Deuteronomy 32 verse 40, 46 says, And He said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your children to observe to do and all the words of this law. Observation of the made known ways. Because He revealed His ways, He made known His ways unto Moses, right? Right? Observation of those ways. Notice in Deuteronomy 32, 47, For it is not a vain thing for you, because what? It's your life. But see, people can say it simplifies my life to confess that I have no need for God. When the Eternal says, because it is your life, And through this thing you shall prolong your days. In this tabernacle, I only have the scripture and meditating and thinking about what it must have been like for our Savior to be confronted by Satan in the way and manner that he was early in his ministry and I've thought about it in my mind, of all the things, of all of the incredible things that he could have said to rebuke Satan. What did he say? How should man live? How should man live? It's by every word. That proceeded out of whose mouth? The eternal's mouth. It's such a beautiful compliment to Deuteronomy when he says, Because this is your life, and through the thing you shall prolong your days. And to Satan, he says, It's not about bread. But you have to live by every word that proceeds out of his mouth, being empowered by his Holy Spirit. It's so wonderful about Jesus, isn't it? It's so incredible is that you can take a look as like the psalmist did, and he says, I want you to show me, I want to see wondrous, glorious things out of your law. But then that very indwelling spirit, that spirit of the Savior, which took that revelation of the divine nature and elevated it to where it's how you function, isn't it incredible to have him as our help and our deliverer? Because really, how you live is your life, right? How you live is your life. And it answers the question, what is the meaning of life? Is to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the eternal because what does He say in Deuteronomy 32? It's your life. And Jesus brought that doctrine. The elevation of the revelation of his divine nature. Right, I'm going to wrap up. I want you to note uh, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, Nehemiah 1 and verse 5 is something that Daniel prayed for in Daniel 9, verse 4. That's the threefold cord. It's not broken. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 Nehemiah 1 verse 5 and Daniel 9 verse 4 where Daniel was praying in captivity and I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said O Lord the great and dreadful God keeping the covenant and mercy keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments to them that love him and to them that keep His commandments. Who said the exact same thing? Savior did. Of course, Jesus did. But in John, He says, If you love Me, keep My commandments. Three references in John 14 and John 15, and of course, three references in 1 John, to where He talks about Kind of elevates and extrapolates upon and kind of builds upon what Daniel was praying in that he is a keeper of the covenant. He is true to his covenant promises, for only he is a promise keeper. The loving and the keeping of the commandments. And then to find the very exact wording, the very exact sentence coming from Jesus' wonderful, beautiful mouth. There's one more thing I was thinking about as David was talking about these incredible things of the Eternal that He has made us aware of through His writings and revealing His ways unto Moses and giving us His Spirit that we can actually find joy and peace and beauty glorious wonderful marvelous things out of the fact that he revealed made known his ways unto Moses even though Jesus does say think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets that's what's commonly thought like David said and an entire theological volumes have been written on why that's so. But something occurred to me as David was speaking when the Messiah went on to say, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Then he says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called the least in the kingdom. And I've often rubbed the old eyebrow and said, shall be least in until now. If the eternal almighty God, creator, made known his ways unto Moses... How could someone who teaches against that be called the least? It's because you will be the least like him. Does that make sense? If he reveals his ways unto Moses to say, ah, that was for a time then, not now. To be least in the kingdom is to be least like him because he made known his ways what he was like and to Moses. And that's who we want to be like. We have a hymn that we sing, I shall be like Him. That is the goal. It is to be like Him. The need for the Almighty is found in His deliverance from God' notion to His revealed covenant relationship nature. It's called out of concocted reasonings that do not align themselves with His ways made known to Moses and elevated. Not done away with, but elevated in Jesus. It's the revelation of His divine nature that David read and we all read while he was speaking. The very divine nature that Peter says we are to be what? Partakers of. To be like him in the kingdom. The need for the Almighty is found in the very psalm that admonishes us to forget not all his benefits. And I want to close with Psalm 103, verse 10. He's not dealt with us after our sins nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities but he's delivered us from the power of darkness and he's translated us into the kingdom of the soon coming Messiah Jesus something for you to think about i will close by saying the need for the almighty the need for the almighty is written within the white stone of Revelation 2.